Well, we're continuing on, uh, obviously, this morning uh, through our series in Ezekiel and we've only had a, a couple of sermons but we've seen quite a lot of things. We've seen, uh, you might remember, a few weeks ago back in chapter 1, that amazing vision of God, uh, of God's glory and God's greatness that Ezekiel saw as Ezekiel was commissioned by God to speak to God's people. Uh, and then last week we had that, that terrifying kind of acted out message from Ezekiel, that silent film, if you like, uh, in Ezekiel's life where he lay on his side for 390 days and that was a message of God's judgement coming against God's people because of their sin uh, against God. So we've had, if you like, these two themes of of God's glory and, and, if you like, the end of God's patience. And in a sense, those two messages come together uh, in in a very profound way for the first time in these chapters uh, in the book of Ezekiel. So chapters 8 to 11 are kind of all of a piece. We're not going to read through all of those, but we're going to try and get a view of what uh, God was saying to his people uh, in those chapters through Ezekiel and what uh, his message for us is then uh, as well. So this chapter begins uh, again by Ezekiel encountering a vision of God uh, and he sees a, a very similar figure, the same figure presumably as in chapter 1, someone who looked like a man and who who from the waist down was like fire. You might remember him from the very end of chapter 1. And in this vision, Ezekiel is grabbed by the hair and and taken to Jerusalem. Uh, He's whisked away to Jerusalem so that God can uh, show him what's going on in Jerusalem. I haven't really mentioned it up up until now, but Ezekiel himself wasn't actually in the city of Jerusalem. He was already, he'd already been taken into exile. So uh, in 597 BC, uh, a whole lot of people were taken into exile by Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, So think of Daniel. Uh, Daniel is taken into exile uh, and he's away in exile. Ezekiel's away in exile. They're, They're over in Babylon and there are still some people though left in Jerusalem and uh, Nebuchadnezzar, he's uh, installed a bit of a puppet king in, uh, in Israel or in Judah and, uh, uh, and Ezekiel is in, uh, taken from his, in this vision, he's taken from uh, Babylon and he's transported back to Jerusalem and God begins to peel away, if you like, the layers of idolatry that are there in the heart of uh, Jerusalem and in the heart of God's temple. So in verse six, uh, and 5 and 6 we encounter the first example. Uh, then he said to me, Son of man, look toward the north. So I looked and in the entrance north of the gate of the, alt- of the altar I saw this idol of jealousy. So right in the, in the court of the temple there is this idol, this uh, idol which people have constructed to another god. It's called an idol of jealousy because it provokes God to anger. It's in the middle of his house. Uh, it's a bit like, you know, imagine that uh, there's a married couple and, uh, and, and so on, the, the husband decides that he's going to bring his prostitute to come home and, and live with them in the house. You don't mind that, darling, do you? Do you don't mind if, uh, if the prostitute comes and lives with us? And that's kind of what is going on here. There's this idol of jealousy that provokes God's jealousy right in his house with his people. And yet God says to Ezekiel in verse 6, you think that's bad? Well, you'll see even worse things than that. Ezekiel's then told to go up to this tiny hole in the wall and to, to kind of expand the hole out, to dig through the wall. He's not really 
digging through the wall, it's just in his vision but in his vision he digs through this wall and on the other side he finds this room in the temple and in the room kind of uh, painted across the wall or you know, kind of sculpted across the wall are these pictures, these images of detestable creatures, of crawling things. And, and in this room are, are, are elders of Israel with bowls of incense worshipping these idols. They're not just any idols, they're idols constructed out of things that God had said to Moses were unclean, they were unclean animals, they were, they were ritually unclean animals and, and these people had constructed idols, false gods out of them and they were worshipping them, not anywhere but in God's temple. The elders say they don't think God sees but God says I can see what's going on. And if that wasn't enough, God says to Ezekiel in verse 13, you will see them doing things even more detestable than this. You think that's bad? Well, wait till you see what else they're doing. Next he brings Ezekiel to the entrance of the temple uh, where he sees a group of women mourning for Tammuz. Tammuz was a Babylonian god. Uh, He was uh, supposed to have died and sort of gone to the underworld and then where he was mourned by his sister and his wife and his mother. So, it was customary apparently for Babylonian women or, or women in particular to mourn for Tammuz. And here in God's temple is this group of women, of God's people, mourning the loss of a God who isn't even a God. And nobody thinks to say anything about it. There they are mourning another God next to the giant altar, the, the, the giant idol, And nobody says anything about it. And that's not all. In verse 15, God says again, Do you see this son of man? You will see things even more detestable than this. And lastly, he brings Ezekiel into the inner court of the temple and in front of the altar are 25 men with their backs to God's temple and instead of bowing down to God, they're bowing down to the son to the sun which God created. They've got their backs to God and they're bowing down to God's creation. And God says to Ezekiel in verse 17, have you seen this son of man? Is it a trivial matter? Is it a trivial matter that my people are doing these detestable things in my house? You see what God shows Ezekiel is idolatry right at the very heart of the worship of God's people, right at the very centre of their religion. Right at the the very centre of their experience and knowledge of God is idolatry. Idolatry hidden away in rooms. Idolatry out on public display. People were bowing down and serving other gods, false gods, lifeless gods, rather than serving the true and loving God of heaven and earth. And that danger of idolatry being alive and well in the centre of God's people, at the centre of their worship of God, is not just an Old Testament problem, but it's a problem that pervades our lives as well. It remains an ever-present danger for us as well. Now, we might not be tempted to paint strange creatures on 
the walls uh, of some of our rooms. Uh, you know, I don't know what's on the wall of that little toilet tucked away in the, the back there. We might not be tempted to, to paint things on walls and to bow down with bowls of incense. We might not be constructed, tempted to construct a statue of Buddha in the front of the church. But idolatry is as close to us in many ways as it was to them. What idols are hidden away, tucked away in rooms that we bow down to and worship? What idols are hidden in plain sight? What idols are there for all to see but which no one sees? What idols do we sit around mourning for, hoping that they'd come back? It's interesting, isn't it, that in this passage, it's not just one person. It's never just one person sitting around going, oh, well, that, you know, there's, there's Bob uh, or Jane, you know, there's Jane mourning for Tamuz and there's one guy in the room worshipping these detestable creatures. There's actually groups of people They're all doing it together and nobody says anything. The temptation, I think, for us is to say, what is the idol in my life? But actually, what God is saying to Ezekiel is, there's idols in his church, in his, among his people, and they're all complicit in it, they're all in it together and nobody's saying anything. What are the idols... Not just in my life, but in our life. What's the idol? In, what are the idols in our lives that we're secreting away in rooms? What's the idol that, that's in our life as a church together that's, that's hidden in plain sight? It's there for all to see, and yet nobody dares say anything about it. What are the things that we mourn the loss of? The things that we don't have that we so desperately wish that we had. And no one is bold enough to say, don't you see? We're not worshipping God anymore, we're worshipping something else. Well, there's easy targets, isn't there? Affluence, comfort. Are those the idols that are hidden in plain sight? There's other targets too. I think one of the great idols of the modern church is the idol of experience, the idol of worship experience in particular. One of the, uh, the uh, ironies of the worship wars was that the fights were always based not on the worship of God but on self-worship. So people would say, I can't possibly worship God using that music and the other side would say, I can't possibly worship God using that music either. But, but actually underlying that was not the worship of God, but actually the worship of my own experience. That I can't feel good about God using that music and I can't feel good about God using that music either. It wasn't about the worship of God, but it's about the worship of ourselves. If we come to church and we don't have an experience, we go home 
discontent. We want either to feel joyful, we want either to feel peaceful, we want to feel convicted, whatever it is, we want to feel something. But that's no longer then about God, it's about us, isn't it? What did I get? Rather than, what a great opportunity to celebrate who God is. Another great idol of the church is that we want the church to be accepted by the world. We want people to think the church is a group of nice people. Now that's not a bad goal, is it? It's not a bad goal to want people to think that we're nice because we are nice, let's be honest. But the danger is that that becomes so much of a, of, a, of a goal, of an idol, that we're never willing to be offensive and to preach the gospel. And to say, actually, unless you repent and believe in Jesus, you cannot be saved. There's the idols of worship experience, the idols of being accepted by others. What other idols are there in our life? Not just as individuals, but more importantly, in our lives together as a church. What idols are hidden away? What idols are hidden in plain sight? Well, Ezekiel 8 lifts the veil, doesn't it, on idolatry at the heart of God's people. If uh, chapter 8 lifts the veil on that, chapter 9 goes on to speak about the ramifications of that idolatry. I'm going to read uh, through chapter 9 to get a glimpse of what God showed Ezekiel would happen uh, to God's people. So Ezekiel chapter 9. Then I heard him call out in a loud voice, bring the guards of the city here, each with a weapon in his hand. And I saw six men coming from the direction of the upper gate with faces north, which faces north, each with a deadly weapon in his hand. With them was a man clothed in linen who had a writing kit at his side. They came in and stood beside the bronze altar. Now the glory of the God of Israel went up from above the cherubim where it had been and, it, and moved to the threshold of the temple. Then the Lord called to the man clothed in linen who had the writing kit at his side and said to him, Go throughout the city of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of those who grieve and lament over all the detestable things that are done in it. As I listened, he said to the others, Follow him through the city and kill without showing pity or compassion. Slaughter old men, young, and maiden, young men and maidens, women and children. But do not touch anyone who has the mark. Begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were in front of the temple. Then he said to them, Defile the temple and fill the courts with the slain. Go. So they went out and began killing throughout the city. While they were killing and I was left alone, I fell face down crying out, Our sovereign Lord, are you going to destroy the entire remnant of Israel in this outpouring of your wrath on Jerusalem? He answered me, The sin of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. The land is full of bloodshed and the city is full of injustice. They say, the Lord has forsaken the land. The Lord does not see. 
so I will not look on them with pity or spare them but I will bring them down bring down on their own heads what they have done. Then the man in linen with the writing kit at his side brought back word saying, I have done as you commanded. You might remember if you were here last week that we saw in chapter 4 and 5 that God's patience would run out. And here in this vision that is beginning to play out the vision of what God would do to his own people when his patience uh, had run out, when his jealous anger uh, had reached its full measure. Here in this vision, uh, God sends through, this, through God's city uh, a man with a writing kit. Now, he has this kit and he, and he goes through the city and he marks uh, everyone on the head who is to survive uh, and and then after him come these other six men armed with these dangerous weapons and they are to slaughter uh, everybody in the city. Now that's not what happened you know, when Nebuchadnezzar or when they, when they came against Jerusalem and destroyed it but it's a picture of what was going to happen. They weren't killed by six men and a guy with a writing kit but, but they were killed at God's command because of God's anger and God's wrath. Verse 6, the men are told, slaughter old men, young men and maidens, women and children, but do not touch anyone who has the mark. Not only that, God is not only judging his people, but he's also desecrating his own temple. So verse 7, we have that haunting command to the six men to defile the temple and fill the courts with the slain. So chapter 9 is not just a vision of God judging his people, but it's also a vision of God abandoning his meeting place with his people. In verse 3 we're told that the glory of God moves from above the statues of the cherubim and the, uh, above the Ark of the Covenant, uh, so in the Holy of Holies. So the temple, there was the central room was the Holy of Holies and there was the Ark of the Covenant and on top of that were these statues of cherubim and above that was the glory of God. And we're told that the glory of God moves from there to over the threshold of the temple. When the, when the temple was constructed under Solomon, the glory of God had come and filled that room, had filled the Holy of Holies. But now in chapter 9 of Ezekiel, God's glory is leaving God's meeting place with his people. Chapter 10 is a renewed vision of God's glory. Ezekiel sees almost exactly what he saw in chapter 1. You know, this is the, the amazing glory of God. He sees those, those cherubim with those wheels within the wheels and, uh, and, and the flashing lightning and, and the great glory of God. And then in chapter 11, uh, in verse 22 and 25, look at the end of chapter 11. Verse 22, the glory of God leaves the temple and Jerusalem altogether. It says, Then the cherubim with the wheels beside them spread their wings and the glory of the God of Israel was above them. The glory of the Lord went up from within the city and stopped above the mountain east of it. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the exiles in Babylonia in the vision given by the Spirit of God. The vision I had seen went up from me and I told the exiles everything the Lord had shown me. So God is finally deserting his people. His patience has run out. He's deserting, if you like, the temple of God, the, the meeting place between God and man. 
And I guess if you were to summarise these chapters of Ezekiel 8 to 11, the message of those chapters is that God cannot stand idolatry. He cannot be in the same place as idolatry. When there's idolatry like there was in the heart of uh, God's people, uh, in the heart of God's temple, God cannot stand there. He cannot dwell there. He cannot live with that. But here's the problem. Our idolatry is beyond our power to cure. So, so there's two problems. See, God can't live with idolatry and we can't cure it. We can't stop idolising things other than God. Calvin, uh, John Calvin called our hearts idol factories. It's a great phrase because it so aptly sums up what we're like. We so easily create idols other than God. Things, good things that we turn into ultimate things. Things which demand our service. Things which capture our hearts. Things which monopolise our attention. God can't stand it and God can't live with it and we can't cure it. But the amazing thing in these chapters in Ezekiel 8-11 to is that there's finally a glimmer of hope. We're 11 chapters into the book of Ezekiel and finally there is a glimmer of hope. Look at chapter 11 verse 17. Therefore say, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I will gather you, you from the nations and bring you back from the countries where you have been scattered and I will give you back the land of Israel again. They will return to it and remove all its vile images and detestable idols. I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their hearts of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Then they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They will be my people and I will be their God. You see, God can't stand idolatry and we can't cure it. But God promises that the solution to this, this impasse is not us but God himself. God promises a day when he will get rid of idolatry, when he'll give people an undivided heart. Even the best people, even the best people in the city of Jerusalem had divided hearts. Even the best of us today, even the best Christians have divided hearts. But God promises that he will take that away. He'll take away our hearts which are idle factories and give us not hearts of stone but hearts of flesh. Hearts on which God's law is written. The law no longer written on tablets of stone but on our hearts so that we do the things that God wants. You see, the great message of Ezekiel is this, that the only way to live God, live with God is to receive God's power through Christ Jesus and through the Holy Spirit. That's where these things are fulfilled, isn't it? It's through the power of the Holy Spirit that God takes away our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. And in that day, says God, they will be my people and I will be their God. 
So God can't stand our idolatry and we can't cure it, but God promises that he will cure it for us. And yet that blessing is not for everyone. So look at verse 21, the next verse, verse 21 in chapter 11. But as for those whose hearts are devoted to their vile images and detestable idols, I will bring down on their own heads what they have done, declares the Sovereign Lord. There are still people. God God promises to heal his people, but those whose hearts are devoted to idols, he'll destroy. We saw in chapter 9 that vast numbers of the people in the city of Jerusalem wouldn't receive that mark on their forehead which saved them from the six men. Not everyone would receive the blessing and the protection of God. And yet some would. Even when God abandoned the temple uh, in Jerusalem, he still didn't abandon all his people in exile. In verse 16 of chapter 11, God says, Although I sent them away, among, far away among the nations and scattered them among the countries, yet for a little while I have been a sanctuary for them in the countries where they have gone. So God protects some, and abandons others. God blesses some and judges others. God gives to some a new heart, an undivided heart, and he destroys others. So who gets what? What's the difference? The answer to that question is found back in chapter 9, verse 4. This is the command to that man with the riding kit. God says, Go throughout the city of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of those who grieve and lament over all the detestable things that are done in it. Go throughout the city of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of those who grieve and lament over all the detestable things that are done in it. Who's spared? It's those who weep over the idolatry in the city. It doesn't say, notice what it doesn't say, it doesn't say it's those who aren't idolatrous. It doesn't say that. It says it's those who weep over the idolatry in the city. You see, it's so easy to think that, well, the question comes up, doesn't it, that if we can't cure ourselves and if God can't live with idolatry, how can we be healed? And God says the remedy is to weep over our sin. Listen to the prayer that Solomon prayed at the dedication of the temple. This is from 1 Kings 8. It's an amazing prayer. When your people Israel have been defeated by an enemy because they have sinned against you and when they turn back to you and confess your name, praying and making supplication to you in this temple, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land you gave to their fathers. When the heavens are shut up 
and there is no rain because your people have sinned against you. And when they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sin because you have afflicted them, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel. Teach them the right way to live and send rain on the land you gave your people for an inheritance. When famine or plague comes to the land or blight or mildew, locusts or grasshoppers or when an enemy besieges them in, the city, in any of their cities, whatever disaster or disease may come and when a prayer or plea is made by any of your people for Israel, each one aware of the afflictions of his own heart and spreading out his hands toward this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place, forgive and act, deal with each man according to all he does since you know his heart. For you alone know the hearts of all men, so that they will fear you all the time they live in the land you gave our fathers. As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name, for men will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays toward this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and do whatever the foreigner asks of you, so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your own people Israel. And may know that this house I have built bears your name. See what he's saying? What Solomon is saying is, when the people sin against you, and they inevitably will, and when you judge them, hear their prayer for forgiveness when they turn to you. See, here's the question that Ezekiel 8 to 11 forces us to ask ourselves. It's a very simple question. The question is this, does idolatry grieve you? Does your own idolatry grieve you? Does it drive you back to God? Does the idolatry of the church and God's people grieve you? Does the idolatry of the world grieve you and drive you back to God? Well, you might say, well, I know that work is an idol for me. I know that my house is an idol. I know that my family and that my children are an idol. I know that the number of likes that I get on Facebook is an idol. But noticing idolatry is not the key. It's grieving over it and repenting from it and seeking God's mercy. You might say, I can't possibly be a Christian. I can't possibly receive God's mercy because I have such a divided heart. You know, there's so much idolatry. You look at yourself and all you see is idolatry. But the question is not, is your heart divided? The question is, does your idolatry grieve you and drive you back to God? You see, if you ask the question, is my heart divided, it will always come back yes, unless you're ignorant and a fool, because our hearts are divided. We'll never be perfect this side of Christ's return. The question is not, do I have an undivided heart? but does that drive me to my knees before God to seek his mercy? You might say, but I don't grieve as much as I should. 
But even grief over that is evidence, isn't it? That our idolatry grieves us. And here's God's message to you and to me if our idolatry grieves us. God says, I'll give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I'll remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Then they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They will be my people and I will be their God. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, please forgive us for the other gods that we set up in our own lives. Lord, the things that we worship, that we devote ourselves to, the things which capture our hearts, the things which if we don't have, life isn't worth living, the hopes and dreams that define us. Lord, forgive us for those idols. Lord, we pray that our hearts wouldn't be divided, but that your law would be written on our hearts by your Spirit. that love for you and for your majestic son would fill our hearts more than it does. Lord, our sins and our offences weigh us down. Have mercy on us, O God, according to your steadfast love. Lord, we pray that you would Enable each one of us to grieve over our own sin, our own idolatry, to grieve over the idolatry of this church, to grieve over the idolatry of our world. And not just to grieve, Lord, but to seek your power and your grace to transform us, to transform our church, to transform our world, to be people of undivided hearts, to be your people and for you to be our God. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.